All right, welcome to the Pete Callender Show. I am the Pete Callender of the Pete Callender Show.com. That's the website. Go there, get the podcast, subscribe on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. Joining me now, old friend, Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation, Becky Gray. We used to talk with her like seemed like every day uh, for legislative issues. She's uh, covering all of the, the doings in Raleigh, as we used to say. And uh, welcome to the show, Becky. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. It's, it's so good to be back with you. Um, you know, I've really gotten used to um, our, our regular conversations, whether it was every week or every day. Sometimes <laughs> I wished it was every day. Talk, talk to somebody with some sanity. Right. Um, but it's great to be with you again. So what's uh, what's new? Well, I guess the first thing I should ask you, have you won any more awards for the for the jams and jellies and apple butter and everything else you make? I don't think since I okay. talked to you, but right. I will tell you that my total right now is three blue ribbons. Nice. And I have one for apple butter. I have one for ha- candied jalapenos, and I have one for a hot jalapeno syrup. So I can't remember where we were the last time we talked, <laughs> but um, I now have three. Congratulations. Well, you, Thank I, you. Yeah, it's, and the apple butter is fantastic. So that out of the way. Let's talk about the recent election. The primaries uh, wrapped up in North Carolina. Um, well, for the most part, there's a couple of runoffs. We still don't know, as we're recording this, whether or not there's going to be a runoff in the Democratic side for lieutenant governor, correct? Right, yeah. And Terry Van Dyne has until, I believe it's March 12th. I mean, it's just a couple of days. Uh, those returns have to be certified, and then she has a few days, not she, but, I mean, that's how the process and the rules are. So we should know something pretty soon whether Terry Van Dyne will call for a primary runoff with Yvonne Holly, who was the top vote-getter in that Democrat race for lieutenant governor, or if she will not. And we're kind of hearing it could go either way there. So, um that, that is still up in the air. We will have a primary for the Congressional District 11, which is the one, of course, in the western part of the state, Mark Meadows' seat, and um, I believe that has been called for a runoff. But those really were the only two. You know, by the time the dust settled and all the votes were in, although there were some very other crowded races that we anticipated that there would be a additional primary all the way down to some of the legislative races, when everything shook out, um, all of those can- most of those candidates, the top vote gotter got 30% plus one, at least um, the percentage of the votes, to eliminate a primary. So that, and, and that number, that 30% cutoff uh, to avoid a runoff, that's a, was that changed recently? Was that a higher yeah. number? Oh, it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it used to be 50% that oh. you had to get in Gosh. order. And that was an almost impossible threshold when you have a very crowded field like we had in the Congressional 11th District. We had for the lieutenant governor's race on both the Republican and Democrat side. And then for some of our legislative races, Pete, there were, um, you know, in some cases, four or five candidates vying for their party's nomination for the general election. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it used to, be, it used to be harder. It's a lower threshold. And quite frankly, Pete, I think it's a good idea to do that. These second primaries and, in some cases, third primaries, um, the, the voter turnout is so low on those that it really is not representative of the, the electorate. You know, it's kind of a joke for some of those second primaries or those really low 
turnout yeah. that whoever has the bigger family is the one that wins. <laughs> uh, so I think this is a better way. It may not be perfect, but I think it's a better way to do it with that 30 percent threshold. So it, it's also interesting in the lieutenant governor uh, uh, runoff, potential runoff with Terry Van Dyne there is that uh, her opponent did not get you know the 30 percent, right? She's close. Um but I can also see Terry Van Dyne saying, because she lost by like, I want to say it was like 100,000, a little bit less than 100,000 votes. It was pretty big margin. But you could make the argument that most of the people did not vote for Holly, right? Like that, the, the, the majority of the people voted for somebody else in that race. Now, I don't know which way they would split in a runoff. Um, but people who are saying that Van Dyne shouldn't, shouldn't seek a runoff, I'm not so sure that that's the best advice. I, she very well could could win a runoff. Well, you know, she could, I think, and, and just those numbers, I'm, I happen to have them handy. Oh, good. Um, Yvonne Lewis Holly got 306,795 votes, which comes out to 26.57%. Mm-hmm. Terry Van Dyne got 236,004 votes. That was 20.44%. So, again, neither one of them are at that 30%. Alan Thomas and Chaz Beasley both got, they actually both got 18.86%. So in the whole (laughs) scheme of things, they were not that far behind. But here's really the question that I think Terry Van Dyne has to to think about. And she is, um, of course, she is a state senator. She is very much a, um, a party player. She is also someone who is established herself pretty early on as a leader in that Senate Democratic Caucus, I think in the Democratic Party. So I think some of the questions that she is probably asking herself and asking for advice on is, what is the best thing for the party mm-hmm. at this point? And, um, you know, they the Democrats would very much like to win all of the Council of State races. And so I think that's probably the conver- some of the conversations that are going on. I'm, I'm not privy to these people, so of mm-hmm. course I don't know. But um, knowing Terry Van Dyne, as I do, um, I I think the likely questions that are being asked is not just can she win in that primary, but what is the best thing for the party? And, you know, will there be other opportunities for Terry Van Dyne within the Democratic Party? Imagine, if you would, a second Cooper administration and some of the um, the, – secretaries of the different agencies and and those kind of things. So all of this, of course, is speculation on my part, but that's what I'm anticipating. Is pro- Those are the kind of conversations that are probably going on. Right. Or maybe she has the support of uh, the Raleigh Democratic Party, I'll say establishment, but, you know, there are enough people in Raleigh that say, no, we think you'd be the better candidate to go up against this guy, Mark Robinson, who's just come out of nowhere. Have you have you ever talked with this fella or or, or do you know anything about him, the lieutenant governor well, candidate? Yeah, and, and this, of course, is on the Republican, Republican side, side, Mark yeah. Robinson. Um, Pete, I have met him or been at meetings with him. Okay. I do not know him. And your question and your reaction of he just came out of nowhere has been the consistent comment that's been made with this primary. And, you know, again, getting back to runoffs with, I think there were nine in the lieutenant governor's race for the Republican, um, and some strong candidates, former superintendent of public instruction, Mark Johnson, who has won a statewide race, 
um, Renee Elmer's well-known name, Scott Stone, state legislator, Andy Wells, state senator from Hickory, who spent quite a bit of money. There was just assurances before Tuesday that there would be a runoff in this particular race. And Mark Robinson was able to garner 32.5% of those votes. And in a a wide field like that, that is just astounding Mm -hmm. that he was able to do that. I've been asked since then, okay, why is this, you know, how, how did this happen? What, what's his secret? And I think it speaks to a couple things. One, he is um, a very passionate speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, he spoke to the Greensboro City Council a year or so ago. On, they were considering some gun restrictions, and he spoke and did an a, amazing speech. And if you haven't watched it, you should. It's on YouTube, um, and it's Mark Robinson and he spoke to the Greensboro City Council. So you can just put that in and and watch it. Um, Really impressive, you know, empowering kind of remarks that he made. I mean, really stood out. So I think, number one, you know, if you have a good message and you can relay that message, you're going to have some success. The other thing that I think this really speaks to is um, the power of social media. Um, Other candidates spent a lot of money. Senator Andy Wells, who came in second in this race, uh, spent a lot of money on television ads. And, you know, we all know those things don't come cheap. So he he didn't – Mark Robinson did not spend a lot of money, but he used social media quite well and was able to get his message out. And I think that we're going to see more of this, this use and of social media – as we, um, you know, as we go into this election cycle, and I think th- this is going to change elections and and how we do it. It's a very disruptive time. Mm-hmm. Well, and and uh, on television, people can skip your ads. Right. That, that's the yeah. yeah the idea that people have to sit through the ad to get to the content that they want. I mean, look at us. We're on a podcast. Like this is everything in this space is being disrupted. And uh, by uh, by the easier access to the distribution platforms. And so uh, people I saw that were uh, criticizing like Mike Bloomberg for spending all of the money and doing these uh, just like a just a a bombardment of uh, of social media ads and stuff. But people who are in marketing, they recognized what he was doing, Uh, you know, quick ads, saturation. And it didn't even matter really about the content. It just you just see it all the time. It's just a frequency kind of a thing. Well, it, yeah, it's that, and the frequency, of course, is most effective when you have friends yep. sharing that with other folks. If you have an ad on TV, you know, you can turn that off. If you have a friend that calls you and says, "Oh, turn your TV on. You got to see this ad," <laughs> chances are you'll watch it. Well, if somebody sends you a YouTube or a social media post from a candidate of something and say, oh, you've got to watch this. Mm -hmm. So you're exactly right. It's the saturation of the market, but it's also the saturation with people really sharing that information. So I think that, you know, when when I've been asked what are some of the takeaways from this election, I think what Mark Robinson did and how all that came down is an illustration of how, like you mentioned, Pete, the disruption that we're seeing and the changes. And then the third thing that I'll offer with this, and I saw this with some other candidates as well, we've heard a lot in speculation about the coattails of the candidates at the top of the ballot. 
you know, whether that's Trump or whether that's Biden and what effect that's going to have on down-ballot races. I don't know how many times I've heard, you know, well, can Trump pull him or her, pull that candidate over the finish line the, of the, um, the power of the coattails? But here's another way to think about it. What I saw with Mark Robinson, if you watch this video, it's very Trump-like. Hmm. There are – so it's not that – it's not that – because President Trump – well, I mean, he was on the ballot, but I don't think that there was much of that down-ballot coattails because these are all Republican primary voters. But there were several candidates that came through this that really – tied themselves to the president or articulated some of the positions and the values that the president has that I think elevated them up through to, you know, for example, you know, Mark Robinson is an example of that. I think it was very effective for him. So it wasn't that Trump reached down and pulled him up. It was that Mark Robinson almost reached up and pulled himself up by the positions that he took and the way that he are. Yeah. Uh-oh. Have we lost you? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. Sorry. It dropped out. So uh, just the phone uh, just every now and again is dropping out. I think I'm not sure if there's something going on here at the uh, station because the lights are flickering here at the station. So I'm not really sure what's going on there. Um, but anyway, so so the one of the other things, though, I think that we have to keep in mind with Mark Robinson is he is African-American and he's a Republican and I think that's a very attractive thing for a lot of Republican voters, especially when a guy gets up and makes the kind of speech that Mark made, does it that well. Um, first off, that's you're going to get a lot of people following you. But also, I think there are a lot of Republican voters that that want to see more uh, African-American Republicans, because I think a lot of Republicans are tired of being labeled as racist. They want more minority representation in their party. Absolutely, and the things that Mark Robinson talked about, and there are other candidates who talked They're universal. about universal as well. Sandy Smith is one who yeah. um, won the primary for the first congressional district. That's the G.K. Butterfield district. Did the same thing. Talked about um, immigration. Talked about gun rights. So it's yes, it's the African American factor, but it's also the issues that they're talking about. Right. And these are issues that resonate with Republican primary voters. Oh yeah, absolutely, and and, yeah. and and you've you've heard this from you've heard this from the president as well, reaching out to the African American right. community with you know we re, we being the Republicans really are the party that you should align yourself with. We're about opportunity. We're about um, helping people reach their dreams. Um, you know, one of the things I think that's interesting of late is the president has really taken an interest and has offered consistent stable funding for historically black universities. You know, always in the past, the historically black universities have to come every year hat in hand to Congress to get funding for, you know, their universities. And what President Trump has said is, this is crazy. We're not doing this anymore. You're going to get, you know, you're going to get the funding every single year. You're not going to have to come and beg for it every year. What you have and what you do is important. It's important to your communities, and he has pledged to make a commitment to that. Those are the kind of things that I think are important to African-American communities. Education, mm-hmm. um, school choice, opportunity scholarships. You know, we're seeing that here in North Carolina of the families that are recognizing 
that opportunities for their families may be better suited outside the traditional public schools. And in many ways, the traditional public schools have failed African-American families and African-American communities. And so just, you know, in, in the statistics and the numbers that we see for the opportunity scholarships, um, you know, where a lot of African-American families are taking advantage of that. And what we're starting to see after that program being in place for a number of years is a success story that we're getting out of that. So, you know, I, th I, I think you're right, and I think that the president has made that a high priority, and the state should make it a high priority, yeah. too, I think, is that, you know, what, what are Republican policies that benefit everyone, and particularly the African-American right. community in a lot of ways. Right. I've always said there's, it makes no sense that, uh, that a limited government philosophy somehow excludes any race or religion or, uh, or ethnicity. It, it, there's, nothing, there's nothing that restricts a limited government philosophy to any particular uh, demographic like that. Um, no, and a, a, a fair playing field right. is fair for everyone. Right. And I think that, you know, no matter who is offered that fair playing field, um, you know, is, is they, they see the advantages to that. And, I mean, I think that's what most people want is, you know, a fair playing field. Give me the opportunity to succeed, opportunity for a good education for my kids, um, opportunity to save money, opportunity to start a business, opportunity to own a home, you know, all of those things. Um, lower taxes that benefit that lower tax base benefits everyone, generates an economy that provides jobs. And um, so I think that's what you're seeing in sort of this – you're certainly seeing the benefits of those policies being put in place. And, you know, whether that resonates politically, I think we'll see in this election cycle. Any other surprises around the state that, that, uh, that struck you? Well, you know, a couple things. One, um, you know, one thing that we learned is, once again, money is not everything. Yeah. And we saw in a lot of these primaries where the person who spent the most money, and sometimes two or three times the money that their opponent had spent, money didn't necessarily mean that you won. We talked about the lieutenant governor's office on the Democrat side. Terry Van Dyne spent a lot more money than Yvonne Hawley did. Um, Mark Robinson did not spend a lot of money. I mean, when you go through all of these races, um, you know, more money doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to win. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, you know, we really haven't talked, Pete, a lot about Biden and what happened there. Um, Biden, of course, won North Carolina. Um, it, it was a the, the kind of turnaround. A lot of people are calling this the Joe-mentum <laughs> right. that happened with the South Carolina primary. And I think what happened, to be honest with you, was when the Nevada results came back, I think Democrats realized, oh, my gosh, we really could have Bernie as the nominee. Hmm. And they kind of panicked, if you will, and, decided, and thought, we've got to do something. Biden surged 24 points in 11 days. And that was after after Nevada. Now, keep in mind, Biden didn't change anything. I mean, his message didn't change, who he was. I mean, he didn't do a wholesale no. change. What happened was the electorate, the Democrats, realized, I think, holy moly, you know, Bernie really could be the nominee, and we've got to, we've got to do something about this. So that's when you saw um, the 
the I'm trying to remember the guy in South Carolina who came out Jim oh, Jim Clyburn Jim yeah. Clyburn yeah. which I think was a complete game changer I mean you know I, I think there'll be books written about this so do you, you think know, that endorsement really did change the mm-hmm. change things South Carolina really changed things and then North Carolina was just part of that movement and then Tuesday night Biden won ten states and is ahead. In the delegate count, now it's not over, mm-hmm. but this clearly was a change in direction. Is it? I, I've seen some pundits who say that uh, what happened in South Carolina was basically that the like the biggest part of the Democratic Party base finally got to vote, namely African Americans. That uh, in these other early states, you just don't have that. You know, Iowa, New Hampshire. <laughs> there aren't a lot well, you of. Say, yeah, you throughout the south yeah and so yeah and so now they and so now the candidates come down south and there's a way bigger african-american population that's a way bigger part of the democrat base and they finally get a chance to weigh in and they're not interested in bernie sanders right yes exactly exactly um and then you had um you know Buttigieg and klobuchar drop out and that they clearly are i mean i'm not inside the the hearts or the minds of the democratic voters but those are clear. They have to be Biden supporters. They they're they're way too moderate. So if you if you kind of divide the Democratic Party into two teams, it would be Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, you know, on one team. Mm-hmm. Bernie, Elizabeth Warren. Um, I'm not sure who else on the other team. But you know, you've kind of got the the progressives and the moderates. And so when Buttigieg and Klobuchar dropped out, that pushed that momentum towards um, Joe Biden as mm-hmm. well. I, 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 I don't know. I tend to think that um, there actually aren't any real moderates left in the campaign. I don't even I don't think Joe Biden. I think they're all they've all been dragged so far to the left now. Um, well, every, yeah, everything's relative. Yeah. Everything's, and, you know, that, yeah. that, that may, be, may be the scariest message of all <laughs> is that, you know, now we have Michael Bloomberg and Joe Biden who are the moderate part of the Democratic Party. And that may be, you know, Pete, now that you mentioned, I mean, that may very well be the message going into the general election is, you know, Biden is still going to support Nancy Pelosi. Right. They're still going to support AOC. They're still going to support Chuck Schumer. Um, so, yeah, e- even Biden being a moderate is way to the left of what we would call like the middle ground. Mm-hmm. So um, also, I'm sure you're going to be very excited to uh, if you hadn't already heard uh, Joe Sam Queen versus Mike Clampett round five. It's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know why we even have a race. Uh, you know, there. What we ought to do is we they just should take turns, right? You know, they, <laughs> yeah. You know, Joe Joe Sam Queen has has had his turn now. So now Mike Clampett right. gets to come for two years. And you know, it could be two years, it could be four years. We could work that out, right? But, yeah. Um, yeah. Details. Always interesting. You know, big strong personalities yeah. there too. Yeah. Uh, All righty. So anything else on the uh, anything? Any other races at the state level before? Uh, to kind of go into this governor's uh, this this impasse well, of the budget yeah, that we, still is yeah, going we, on. We we didn't talk a lot about the eleventh congressional district. Yeah, we can. We, yeah, what are your thoughts you know, on that? I covered the eleventh state. Yeah, I'm I'm an observer on that. I don't live it, um, but things seem to be just a big mess. Yes, up there. that is um, true. <laughs> yeah, a mess created when Mark Meadows 
made his announcement he wasn't going to run. And then, you know, again, we were talking about the primaries, and that was a surprise, too, that um, it it really was those, I think the, well, it was um, Linda Bennett Mm -hmm. and... Madison Cawthorn are the, the, the... Madison Cawthorn. And then Jim Davis yep. was really kind of a close third behind that. And a lot of people, at least here in Raleigh, were predicting that Jim Davis would win that. Probably, I mean, you know, maybe may a primary, but a lot of people were saying that Jim Davis would get enough of the votes to, um, to avoid a primary even. But mm-hmm. that was not the way things turned out. No, and he immediately, after the primary, he immediately threw his support behind the kid, Madison Cawthorn, who uh, was pointed out to me the other day by uh, Dr. Chris Cooper at Western Carolina. He said that uh, Cawthorn isn't even old enough to technically be sworn in yet. <laughs> He's, he's what is he twenty four? Yeah, he's going to be twenty four, something like that. So if he if he were to win uh, the runoff, so yeah, it's it. Well, and it, what's interesting to me, it's sort of you know the the best laid plans, you know, kind of gone awry here, where it seemed like, and I have no inside knowledge of this at all, okay, but it seemed like Congressman Meadows tried to time the announcement of his retirement. Uh, after a date where people could not uh, file to run uh, if they had already filed for another seat. So everybody that was in office that had filed for re-election, they could not pull their filing and then run for his seat. And so, uh, and and then he did it right before the official close of filing. And so it basically created this really constricted time frame for people to make that decision, which is a huge decision to make if you're going to run for Congress and it's expensive. You got to, you know, if you're going to be serious about it, you got to talk to people, line up the donors, make sure that this is going to be something you can do. Uh, And then you got to drive to Raleigh and you got to put down like $5,000 or whatever it is for the filing fee. And uh, the way he did it angered a lot of people in the 11th district because they thought that he was trying to Stiff arm everybody else except for Linda Bennett because she was up immediately with the website, a Facebook page, got an endorsement from the Tea Party of Asheville. So it just seemed like it's it seemed unseemly, I think, for a lot of people, and that sparked a lot of um, a lot of I think people who voted against Linda Bennett for that, whether or not she deserved to be voted against or not. She was also the target of. Uh, leaked audio that was not true. Like they, somebody took some audio from a meeting and I have the whole audio. We played it the other day. Um, and it, she says, um, you know, she's saying that they're, they were arguing over palm cards and she pretended to be a never Trumper making an argument. Mm. They took that audio and then said she is a never Trumper and it wasn't true. So she's been the victim of some, you know, smear attack as well. So yeah, it's a mess. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 sounds like it. And then the other question here, and Pete, you may know the answer to this, but it is it is still, it is a strong Republican district, but it is less strong than it used to be. And I understand on the Democratic side, the guy who won this, Moe Davis yep. of Asheville, uh, won with 47% of the vote in that primary. 
um, you know, is a, is a is a good formidable candidate. So yeah. with this unrest, and maybe, you know, we'll see in the primary if there's a hesitancy for the Republicans to get behind the Republican candidate, whoever that may be, because of this animosity. Then is that district at risk? I don't know. I like. My gut tells me no, and and when I asked Cooper, uh, Doctor Cooper, a similar question, like it went for he gave me the numbers. I forget what it was. It went from you know like a sixty percent Trump district to a fifty percent Trump district. So it, mm-hmm. it's still he he we I, and I tend to agree with him. It's still going to be very very difficult for a Democrat to win the district, despite the redrawn lines and despite the the mess that's occurred in the primary. Um, I, I think. I think whoever comes out of that runoff is probably still, you know, in a better position to win. Um, and, and I think this uh, the Democratic candidate, uh, when you read his bio, he sounds like, oh, this is, sounds like somebody that might be able to get some Republican support. But then you read what he has said and his positions mm-hmm. on stuff. And he's I mean, he's an MSNBC contributor at one point. Like he's yeah, he, he's very, very left. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't I, I well, don't know if that's going to be know, on before we leave. The, um, yeah. So that's going to be interesting to watch and yeah. what that comes down to. And also what the repercussions are amongst Republicans and conservatives in the western part of the state of this. I mean, yeah. you know, do, do people come out so battered and bruised um, and so many hurt feelings and mistrust? You know, do we see those repercussions yeah. later? Um, yeah, I, mean, I don't know the answer to that, but that's something to, to look at. But along those lines, too, just before we leave those congressional districts, I wanted to mention, too, that um, – well, we mentioned that that district had changed. Yeah. But the two districts that changed the most in the congressional district was the 2nd and the 6th. And um, the 2nd district was George, is George Holdings' district um, that was drawn much more Democrat, and Deborah Roth who, this is here where in the area where I live, mm-hmm. Wake County, former ACLU lawyer. She served in the North Carolina House. She won that primary over three other candidates, and that district has been drawn so favorable to Democrats that, it, you know, like you were saying with the Asheville or the Western District, um, it would be hard for someone of the opposing party to win that. So it looks like Deborah Ross will be going to Washington. And then in the 6th District, which is the one that's the Green, uh, Greensboro area district that Mark Walker had that was redrawn that he felt like, you know, it just was unwinnable for a Republican. And the numbers would indicate that he's probably right. Um, that was that primary was run by Kathy Manning and um you may remember that name. She ran against Ted Budd in the last congressional race. Mm-hmm. Um, she did win that sixth race this time, Democrat. She's very wealthy. She's a longtime Democratic donor, you know, plays in high-level Democrat politics. Uh, she's from Greensboro. And, again, because that district has been redrawn, because the Democrat won it, it looks like Kathy Manning will be joining the North Carolina delegation in Raleigh. So, or, I'm sorry, in Washington. In Washington, So yeah. that was kind of the other interesting thing that happened in the congressional. The rest of it, um, Dan, um, Dan Bishop in the 9th yeah. district, you know, of course, you know, you remember that race and, you know, all of that that, that took place in a redrawn district. Um, did have Cynthia Wallace 
won the Democratic nomination, but that really is a much stronger Republican district. And I'll tell you, I was down in Charlotte not too long ago at an event where Dan Bishop was was there, and um, he he has really grown in, in a very short time. He has really grown into that district and that role as a congressman, and you could just feel the the love for him, you know, mm. and it was not a fundraiser, you know, or anything like that for him. It was just a, a political policy event that he was there because he's the congressman for that area. But I, I just think Dan Bishop is going to be very hard to beat. Yeah. Well, and I just, when I was a reporter, gosh, 15 years ago, and he was a county commissioner, new, brand new county commissioner, he, he just, he has a certain personality that is uh, is charming and it's disarming to people. He's just he comes across as a very nice, genuine kind of a guy, and and he's very humble, yeah. very smart, one of the best law legal minds, you know. And he's fearless. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you may recall when the general assembly was taking up the HB two issue. I mean, he led the way with it. Right. He was absolutely fearless with it, and he had every legal argument, every data point at his fingertips at all times. I mean, it was it was a passionate issue for him, but it was one that was backed up intellectually. And I will tell you, I was very disappointed when Dan Bishop decided to run for that congressional seat <laughs> from a very selfish perspective, because he was so great to have in the General Assembly. And, you know, it was just his his leadership and his command of the policies and the legal arguments and how to draft good legislation and how to defend conservative policies um, is something – I mean, he, he just was great at it. Yeah. So very selfishly, I wanted to – because I work so closely um, – at the, the North legis- Carolina General Assembly. Right. I, but, you know, he's a great he, – I think he's turning out to be a great congressman. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, speaking of the General Assembly, still no budget, right? Still no budget. Are they? So are they coming back at some point soon now to do a short session? Yeah. Here's the deal. Now, Pete, first of all, i got, I got to push back a little bit. Um, they have a budget. <laughs> That's true. They That's fair. They don't have the new budget. <laughs> but, you know, in 2006, 15, I think it was, the General Assembly passed a law that said if there's not a new budget enacted, then we just revert back to last year's budget. So technically and legally, we have a budget. It just reverts back to last year's spending. Um, For fiscal conservatives like myself that think government spends too much money, we're saving about $2 billion a year by doing that. So I'm okay with right. I'm okay with that. But we do, you are correct. The the budget for this fiscal year that the General Assembly passed with bipartisan support went over to the governor. The governor vetoed it. It came back to the General Assembly and the Republicans have tried everything they know how to do to get the veto overridden or to get the governor to rescind the veto, go back to the drawing board, um, you name it. The governor has been, he, he's been immovable on that. So you're correct. We do not have a new budget. We're still operating under last year's spending. And there have been, you know, there have been some concerns with it. There's been, um, now they did do a couple mini budgets, standalone budgets, if you will, where they pulled some of the provisions out of that big budget document. Things like um, 
there were some things that needed to be put in place in order to get federal funding for some transportation projects, for some DHHS projects, for some education projects, those kind of things. There was enrollment growth through the schools. We have people moving here to North Carolina. We have more people enrolling in our public schools, in our community colleges, in our universities. So that enrollment growth was pulled out, and that was funded. But the um, the, the big budget, like you say, stands exactly like it has been for several months now. Um, the General Assembly came back in January to try to override the veto, and we're not able to do it. Now, they come back April 28th for the short session, and we'll see what, what happens there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to – well, I don't want to make a projection, a prediction, but I well, gotta, I have an I, idea I, I where it's going to go. <laughs> yeah, and, and I don't know what I, – I don't know what is going to happen, but here is my take on it. Um, this is you, this is clearly at the governor's feet, and you know there's uh, um, there there's funding that people are concerned about. the The president of the university system has come out and said we desperately need the the funding that was in the budget to go through. Some of the counties are mm-hmm. now you know sort of petitioning for that funding to go through. There's a two hundred million dollar. Uh, building addition to the Brody School of Medicine at mm-hmm. East Carolina University that is critical to medical care in that part of the state. Um, a, a lot of concerns. You know, in a $25 billion budget, there's a lot of funding in there. Um, the General Assembly, again, the General Assembly passed by bipartisan vote, passed that budget, sent it over to the governor. The governor vetoed it and said he was not going to consider any budget that didn't have Medicaid expansion and bigger pay raises for teachers, and that he wasn't, you know, that was it. He wasn't going to talk about it if those things weren't in there. The General Assembly came back and offered a 3.9% pay increase for teachers and said, we're not interested in Medicaid expansion, but let's talk about health care issues. And the governor has stood by his veto, and not only has he stood by his veto, Pete, but he has really... Um, put tremendous pressure on the Democratic members of the General Assembly to sustain his veto. So if people are unhappy that this new budget is, isn't in place, in my view, there's one place to, to look for that, mm-hmm. and that's at Governor Cooper. So um, to your point, there, there was a write-up at a uh, website called thecentersquare.com. I, I don't know anything about the website, but there was a report here they've gone through, and there's a three more county or boards of county commissioners, I should say, uh, Union County, Avery County, and Sampson County, they all voted, uh, take up resolutions, basically, to uh, call on the governor to enact the budget. And Union County, they're waiting on $26 million for infrastructure improvements, education, and substance abuse and homeless services. Uh, the biggest expense on hold is $20 million for K-12 county schools. In Avery County here, officials want the state to release $10.5 million for public safety, education, recreation, and social services for its residents, um, most of which is to be used for school construction and renovations. And then in Sampson County, they need $22.5 million from the state uh, for multiple water and sewage repair projects and school construction, which is interesting because... 
We've heard Democrats argue for so long now that uh, the state needs to do more on the capital side of the education funding equation, because the way we do it now is the state basically does the operating expenses and the counties do the capital. And now you've got the state doing capital, funding some capital, but the governor's veto has held that up, which, again, is like this is one of the problems with relying on the state to provide you with the capital construction is that it's a lot easier to say just hold off on the project than it is to say we're not going to give you any money to educate that kid this uh, school semester. Right. Yeah. And you know there there are needs again the in the budget was close to 25 billion dollars yeah. spending. And so, you know, that's spread across the state it's for all kinds of needs and you know you mentioned some of these infrastructure needs Water and sewer. Pete, so many of our water and sewer systems across North Carolina were built 50 years ago with materials that were designed to last for 50 years. So these are critical needs. And imagine, you know, imagine what would happen to our economy. Imagine trying to recruit businesses and manufacturers to come to North Carolina and expand their businesses or start their businesses, and you can't guarantee water and sewer. I mean, you know, that's like the if, if there is a core function of government. I would argue that it is the infrastructure, you know, roads, bridges, yeah. ports, um, water Public and safety. sewer. And yeah. all of that is in this budget. The governor has vetoed it. Um, but he's done it for health care purposes, right, for Medicaid expansion. He said, and know, they think Medicaid that's going to win them the election. Expansion. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they think he, that's, the, that's the winner. A couple points about that. Medicaid expansion, now these are his numbers. These right. aren't mine. Medicaid expansion in the first two years would cost six billion dollars. Now, let me remind you, our entire state budget is $25 billion. Medicaid expansion alone would cost $6 billion in the first two years. It would put 643,000 additional people onto a very fragile Medicaid program. We already have 20% of our population is on Medicaid already. 50% 50% of the babies in North Carolina are born un, under Medicaid coverage. Um, he wants to put 643,000 additional people on that program. And, Pete, of those 643,000, about 80% of those are working-age, able-bodied, childless adults. These are not the aged, the um, disabled, the um, very poor pregnant women and children, that is not this population that Medicaid was designed for. So what you're really talking about is like rewriting the entire Medicaid program. And by the way, our current Medicaid program is unstable. Um, it, it needs fixing before we put 643,000, before we even think of putting 643,000 additional people on that program. Yeah. But yet this is what the governor has insisted on and has held up and has created this stalemate with the budget. Um, so a couple of things on this. So number one, I think uh, Democrats are putting all of their election hopes in the health care uh, basket. They, uh, they think it's the winning issue that uh, got them their victories in 2018. I think that's why they're, uh, they're, they're going all in on the Medicaid expansion. Also, um, that uh, that audio that came there from the webinar that uh, Carolina Journal reported on from the the, T- the NCAE, they're obviously okay with letting this happen and you know bearing the 
the pain of not getting the pay raises for now because they're looking at the long game, which is uh, we get more Democrats elected to the General Assembly and then we'll get even more pay raises. So uh, all of the people that that Cooper really cares about, I think they're all telling him, keep going on this strategy. So I don't see any I don't see any off ramp for him. I, I, I don't either. And he's dug himself in so deep. But also, just remember, the NCAE, the teacher union, represents a very small number yeah. of teachers. I mean, I've heard 5%. Now, I think that's those that have their, their dues automatically taken out of their paycheck. It doesn't include people that send their dues in to the, um, to the teacher union. But the teacher union does not represent all of the teachers. I mean, please keep that in mind. And, you know, I mean, somewhat anecdotally, but, you know, there are a lot of teachers out there who say, you know, a 3.9% pay increase, I'll take that and then continue to work towards, you know, additional pay increases, to work towards performance pay, you Mm -hmm. know, for teachers that are doing a really good job, for teachers that the outcomes in their classrooms are showing that their students are doing well, is where we ought to be putting the raises and the incentives for teachers to do you know, continue to do a better and better job. Um, so, you know, when you hear these demands and you say, well, the teachers want this or the teachers, you know, are, you know, they're demanding more pay, that, that's the teacher union, which is a very small percentage of the teachers in North Carolina. Which it is kind of an interesting tactic to say, let's forego this, what was it, 9% pay raise over two years or something, right? Let's forego this. Because we'll get more, even if it's, what, a year or two later. Well, how much would you need to get to cover what you didn't get this year? Plus, if you don't get it next year either, now you need 9% plus whatever that third year. Like, do you ever think you you make that up? You know, take take half a loaf now and then fight for the rest later. And you know, Pete, we're not just talking about this year. Teachers have had five consecutive pay increases. The percentage of pay increases they've gotten over the last five years, I think it's 25 percent. I think I've, no, that, that's an average. Um, but, I mean, you, who, have you gotten a 25 percent pay increase over the last five years? Um, I'm definitely I not mean, the I'm, person to ask I about don't, pay raises. many people that have. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm not saying that teachers aren't worth the money. I mean, I think anybody who's been, who has had a teacher knows that a really good, t- a life changing teacher, a good teacher, is worth their weight in gold. We can never pay them what they're worth. But we can pay a competitive salary. And with these pay increases and and this um, focus and dedication and commitment to raising the teacher pay to a competitive level, um, you know, we've, we've done a lot of that. What we need to do now, in my view, is let's start looking at, instead of giving across-the-board percentage pay increase to anybody that's a teacher, let's start looking at where are the outcomes, where are the, what, what's happening to the kids in the classroom. And if you're a teacher that's getting really good outcomes for your kids, whether they start at the low end and you make a little bit of progress, or if you start with kids from, um, you know, a, a well, a high-income area that are excelling already and you bring them up, I mean, there's got to be factors in built into that formula. But, you know, let's start looking at the outcomes rather than the inputs. And I think that's a that's a better, more effective way of using taxpayer money. And I think it's going to result in better educational outcomes for kids and better educated kids, which isn't that the goal? Um, I thought so. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I thought so. Well, th- my view on it has always been I am 
perfectly happy and willing to pay great teachers a lot more money. I refuse to pay the bad ones the same amount. That's all. Um, yeah, and I think that most people would, you know, you know, everybody would agree with that, Pete, except the bad teachers. Right. Probably so. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, we have to let you run here, but I wanted to get uh, just your quick uh, reaction to, I saw a tweet that the uh, uh, State Employees Association of North Carolina, the Employees Union, they retweeted a Carolina Journal article applauding Republican Treasurer Dale Falwell. I'm just, I got it. Like I, I'm through the looking glass here. I guess what's going on with the with the Employees well, Association? Here's what's happening: is um, Treasurer Falwell has really stabilized the state pension plan and is really tackling head-on and fearlessly the question of the health plan that the state employees have, their health insurance. You can imagine, I mean, with all of the hundreds of thousands of state employees that we have, that health, that state health plan is one of the biggest drivers of, of health cost. And um, Treasurer Falwell has been fearless in really going up against the big hospitals and other big forces in insisting on transparency and ways to make the health plan more affordable so that it can be sustainable, so that state employees can continue to get health coverage. He also has done a lot with the state pension plan and ensuring that it is stable and it is one of the best funded in the country, but we still have to watch it every single day. And, and Secretary, or Treasurer Falwell is doing a really good job with that um, because what we want, to, we want to ensure that we can keep the promises that we've made to our state employees. Um, and so between the state health plan and the state pension plan, um, Treasurer Falwell has done a really good job of stabilizing and keeping both of those things on the right track, again, so that we can fulfill the promises that we've made to our state employees. Becky Gray, the Senior Vice President at the John Locke Foundation. You can read uh, all about her and her work that she does, carolinajournal.com, johnlocke.org, but carolinajournal.com, where you can see her writings. And we appreciate your time, as always. Becky, good to talk with you again. Thanks for your time. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you so much, and thanks for what you're doing. Uh, Well, we'll see how long we can do it for. I appreciate it. (laughs) We'll see if it works. Uh, So far, so good, though. Thank you, Becky. Thanks, Pete. All right, bye now. All right, that's another show in the can. Well, that's Radio Speak. Do I still get to do Radio Speak if it's a podcast? ThePeteCalendarShow.com. Subscribe at your favorite podcast platform. Don't break anything while I'm gone.